Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Sports Travel Podcast, where we interview leaders in the sports event industry. This is Jason Gewertz, editor and publisher of Sports Travel, and our guest on this episode is Melissa Stockwell, a three-time paratriathlon world champion, a 2016 Paralympic bronze medalist, and an inspiration to many adaptive sports athletes through her work with the nonprofit Dare to Try. We'll be talking about her journey to the Paralympics, how she's preparing for a most unusual games ahead in Tokyo, and what good events do well when it comes to taking care of adaptive sports athletes. But before we begin, this episode of the Sports Travel Podcast is being sponsored by the Teams Conference and Expo, the world's largest gathering of sports event organizers and the destinations and suppliers that serve the sports event industry. Teams 21 will be held at the Atlantic City Convention Center in Atlantic City, New Jersey, September 27th through the 30th, 2021. This year's conference will once again feature the co-location of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee's SportsLink program and NGB Best Practices Seminar, as well as the annual symposium of the National Congress of State Games. For more details on everything we have planned at Teams this year, please visit teamsconference.com. And now, on to the conversation. Melissa Stockwell's road to the Paralympics began after graduating from the University of Colorado in 2002. After leaving Boulder, Stockwell was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the United States Army's Transportation Corps, and in 2004, just a month after arriving in Iraq, her vehicle was hit by a roadside bomb. The blast took her leg and made her the first female American soldier in history to lose a limb in active combat. After earning a Purple Heart and Bronze Star for her service, she turned her attention to the Paralympics, becoming the first Iraq War veteran to qualify for the Paralympic Games. She competed in swimming at the Beijing Games in 2008, coming away without a medal but being selected to serve as the Team USA flag bearer at the closing ceremony. After Beijing, she switched to triathlon, and that's where she really found her calling. At the 2016 Paralympic Games in Rio, she won a bronze medal in her category, part of a U.S. sweep of the podium in what was the first paratriathlon to be featured as a medal event. Now she's training for the Tokyo Games in hopes of besting that performance, and she may well have a good shot. Shortly after we recorded this conversation, Stockwell came away with a gold medal in Yokohama, Japan at the World Triathlon Paris Series opener, which was held just over 100 days out from this summer's games in Tokyo. We'd like to say thanks to one of Stockwell's sponsors, Procter & Gamble, for their help in arranging this episode, which goes into Stockwell's journey to the Paralympics, how she's preparing for a Paralympic Games that will be unlike any other, and how she's encouraging youth adaptive sports athletes to give triathlon a try. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Melissa Stockwell, welcome to the Sports Travel Podcast. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. So uh, we actually share something in common, and it is definitely not uh, appearances on an Olympic or Paralympic podium, as I have yet to uh, reach that height. But I am a graduate of the University of Colorado, which I believe you are as well. Yes. Go Buffs, right? Go Buffs. Always nice to have a fellow buff on the Sports Travel Podcast. And I know that your journey, Melissa, into uh, Paralympic sports obviously started after your time in college. You went on to service in the military and in the Army. And, you know, I think like so many in the Paralympic movement in particular, your journey essentially started because of your experience there. So for those who are not familiar with your story, Melissa, maybe you could we can start by just kind of walking through what happened to you during your time in the military and how that led you on this journey into the Paralympic movement. Yeah. So I was in in the military, so was commissioned as as an officer in the army in 2002, deployed to Iraq in 2004 and was in Iraq for three short weeks when 
vehicle I was in was struck by a roadside bomb, which to make a, what could be a long story really short, um, resulted in the loss of my left leg above the knee. So 24 years old. And I, um, you know, was suddenly an amputee and, and missing my left leg. And I'd been an athlete um, growing up. So I'd been a big gymnast, dreamt of going to the Olympic games. And as I laid in my hospital bed at Walter Reed, I had all these, you know, questions on things I'd be able to do. Would I walk? Would I be independent? Would I still be an athlete? And I learned pretty quickly in the first couple of months that I would walk with a prosthetic leg. I could be independent. So the next journey was kind of, I wanted to be an athlete again. And I learned, uh, I learned about the U.S. Paralympics um, a few months after um, losing my leg. Learned that if I, you know, dedicated myself to a sport, I could compete at the world's highest level for somebody with a disability at the Paralympic Games. It was kind of like I had a second chance. So a dream was born pretty quickly of wanting to be a Paralympian and kind of took off. Um, I was medically retired from the army and took off into the sport of swimming, ended up competing in the 2008 Paralympic Games in Beijing, then turned to the sport of triathlon where I competed in 2016, got a bronze medal, and now I'm training for Tokyo. Right. Well, let me take you a a half a step back there. Uh, When you started with swimming, uh, were you a swimmer before? What was your experience with the sport? Um, So I knew how to do all the strokes, (laughs) but never, um, you know, obviously very new to dive off the blocks with one leg. You do a flip term, you push off the wall with one leg. I get asked a lot if I swim in circles and no, because (laughs) swimming is very much an upper body sport, but I just, you know, I fell in love with the water. The water kind of had this healing effect. Like it almost made me forget as I was missing my leg. So I, I just kind of fell in love with everything that came with it. Yeah. And then you're there in Beijing competing in swimming, uh, at the time. Was that, uh, how do you describe that experience? I mean, just being on the, oh, on the starting block and, and reaching that point, you know, being it. So Beijing didn't go as I wanted it to athletically, but looking back all these years now, the being able to put that USA uniform on, you know, go out to the starting blocks, representing a country I defended over in Iraq, you know, my family and my friends there, it had been, you know, almost four, it had been four years since I'd lost my leg. And here I was on the world's biggest athletic stage. And it was, um, I mean, incredible. I don't even know how to put words to it. It was incredible. Um, the magnitude of all of it, you know, from the streets of Baghdad, now I was in Beijing and I was, you know, representing the red, the white and the blue. I mean, everything that went with it was, was incredible. You know, I did not win a medal there. I got a participation medal, <laughs> but I um, was honored to carry the American flag um, in closing ceremonies and representing the entire U.S. delegation. And I don't know, it just, it, everything just kind of came full circle. Yeah, well, That's something else to be a flag bearer puts you in a, as you know, in a minority of, of right. athletes in, in right. your position. So I, I can't even imagine the the experience of that. And so what happened next, Melissa? Why the, the shift to triathlon and what was that shift like for you? So I, in 2009, I was invited to do a triathlon. I thought triathletes were crazy. I mean, who wants to like, <laughs> like run at the same time, but decided to accept this invitation with a group called the Challenge to Athletes Foundation. Went out to San Diego, California, where there were dozen, maybe a hundred other athletes with disabilities. We all do this triathlon together. I crossed my first finish line and just kind of fell in love with it. I loved the challenge of all three sports. I got to wear different prosthetic legs. I got to be on the same course as able-bodied athletes, cross the same finish line. I just became super passionate about the sport from the beginning. So um, realized I wasn't I was pretty good at it. What ended up, you know, becoming part of the paratriathlon national team, competed around the nation, around the world. And then um, it was yet to be a Paralympic sport. And then in 2013, I think it was announced that it was going to be a Paralympic sport in 2016. So that became the new goal. 
Right. And the swimming's a slightly different animal in the open yeah. water than it is. <laughs> Very, I wish it was in the pool. I am a much better pool swimmer, but I'm doing what I can with the open water. Excellent. Well, obviously things worked out fantastic for you in Rio and you're you're on the team uh, training here to Tokyo. We're all familiar, of course, with the story of what's happened uh, in the world and p- particularly in the Olympic and Paralympic movement here over the last year. Do you remember where you were last year, Melissa, when you got the news that the Paralympics were going to be postponed as well. It seemed for a while there, we were on this path where it looked like it was going to happen, but actually hearing the news must be something else. Yeah, I think we all almost expected it. Or, you know, when the Olympic Training Center facilities shut down, I think races were being canceled. And I I was here at home. I think it was in the morning. I woke up and the news was everywhere. So I was with my husband, with my family. And I don't think we were all overly surprised by it. I think it was very much the right call. I mean, safety always comes first, especially health. And, but it was still, you know, I'm, so I'm, I was, was I? Yeah, I was. So I was 40 years old and, you know, I had two young children and we had this, my husband and I, athletes kind of live on these like four year blocks. Sure. And in the end of August of 2020, I was going to be home more. I was going to be more involved in the business we just started. And suddenly it was like, oh my gosh, like another year. I mean, can I do this? My body is getting older. Do I want to be away from the kids? But it was a, a very fleeting moment of, of course, you want to see that dream through to completion. I want to, you know, it's a whole nother year for my kids to realize why mommy swim bikes and runs all the time. So <laughs> it, it's actually been a great, somehow I've gotten faster throughout this year. So maybe it, maybe it was a good, a good postponement, but here we are like four months out already. Right. And you mentioned home, home for you is Colorado Springs, home to the, uh, to the training center, of course, as well. What was your access to the center? I know uh, things pretty much shut down there like everywhere else. Yeah, it shut down. So, um, so I typically train there for, I mean, hours every day. I was at the, in the pool this morning, I'll be back for this afternoon, but everything shut down um, for about three months. So we, luckily it was nice outside. It was summer. I could bike and run outside. We all kind of had our like pseudo strength gym set up at home, swim courts because we weren't able to go in the pool. So we, we made the most of it. Um, It'll be interesting when the competition, you know, to see our international competitors and kind of how everyone fared through through the pandemic. Have you been able to compete since then? Have there been any events that you've been able to get to between then and, and where we are now? So there was a race in Florida, in Sarasota, Florida, a few weeks ago that um, just Team USA basically competed in that. Our first international race is actually coming up. Um, we leave May 10th, so and go to Yokohama, Japan. Um, to race there on May 15th. So that'll kind of be the start. There'll be the race in Yokohama. There'll be a race in Europe sometime in early June. Our U.S. qualifier is in the end of June, and then we'll know the team by early July. Right. And how was that experience for you in, in Florida, Melissa? Were were there noticeable differences in just how things were operating, even for you as an athlete at that event? You know, I think the amount of smiles I saw, everyone was just so excited to be back on the race course. So that was like everyone just on such a high because of it. But I mean, definitely. I mean, we had to cross the finish line, put our masks right on. Um, You know, I mean, you know, the spectator situation, um, not that we have a lot there anyways, but there's just, there weren't as many people around, but I, it was just so great to be back on the race course. At that time, I don't think any of us cared. We could just, just to be on a race course was amazing. Right. Now, uh, as we look ahead toward Tokyo, at least as we stand now, obviously no foreign spectators, and it's looking like that will also encompass family and friends as well. What are your thoughts there, Melissa? I mean, I know maybe things could still turn around between now and, and then, but right now it's going to be very limiting yeah. for people uh, who can get over and you've got a, you've got a family and some kids who I'm sure would love to see you compete. I know I'm not, not going to lie. It was pretty devastating news. Um, 
when we heard the news, you know, I had these dreams and these visions of being on the race course in Tokyo. My, in Rio, my, my, I only had one child and my son, but he was too young to go. So my whole family was going to go over and I had these, you know, these dreams of them hearing them on the sidelines, cheering me on and they're not gonna be able to be there. So that's, um, it's, it's a bummer. You know, I, it, it's probably the right call. It doesn't mean I can't be upset by it though. So there is a U.S. qualifier race in the end of June. My family will go to that. That'll be a pseudo Tokyo. My kids will be there and we'll kind of, you know, make that up to be the best it can be. So, but it's, um, I mean, I tell you, being, being a parent, being, being a, a, a mom and just wanting to have them there on the sidelines, I want to actually, like, I want them to see it. And to them, I mean, they're still young. So a race is a race. So June, you know, the June race in Wisconsin, who knows if they would even know a difference between that and Tokyo. But, you know, I want them to see, you know, not only me race, but like the sportsmanship of when my competitors cross the finish line of, I want to, like, I want them to see me con- congratulate them and kind of have that, you know, that kindness and that compassion, you know, for my competitors. And it's, it's very much along the line of, you know, PNG's new film, you know, a mother's nature. It's just like that important role that parents can play. And I just love being able to show them that really firsthand. It is so unfortunate, but obviously you're, you're not the only athlete in that situation. And you know, what, what can you do? It's, it's interesting to me too, Melissa. I mean, as someone who obviously trains and you've got this goal uh, with an event like the Paralympics coming up, we're, as we talk now, still a little over a hundred days out uh, for the start of the Paralympics. There's still a lot unknown just as far as the logistics of of what things are going to look like when you get over there. Can you describe just how challenging that is? I mean, you can control what you can control, I suppose, as far as your training, but there are aspects as we're talking now, reports are possibly daily testing for COVID. All these details are still being worked out. Does that make it just that much more difficult for you when you think about preparing to go over there? You know, so we're going to Japan in two weeks. So we kind of had this test trial, you know, going to Japan and I mean, we had to start two days ago to monitor our, um, we had to fill out a questionnaire every day. We have to, you know, get visas. We have these different protocols. When I go over there, we have to be in a bubble for three days. So I like basically can't leave my hotel room. Um, we get daily testing. So I feel like I'm kind of getting an inside scoop because I'm going to Japan for a race before the actual race. But I mean, just like you said, you control what you can control. I mean, we just found out this morning that we have to stay in Japan an extra day after this race in Yokohama for COVID protocol. Is it what I want? No, I want to come home to my family. But I can't control that right now because I am on this mindset of Tokyo. So I think you kind of do what you can do. You control what you can control. And the rest, you just, I mean, it just, it is what it is. Yeah. You mentioned something earlier that I wanted to come back to, and that's this notion of what a crowd is like for you in uh, in triathlon or in paratriathlon as well. Still some unknowns, even locally in Tokyo, what that situation is going to be like for spectators. But in a typical event, Melissa, what is that like for you? I mean, how important is a crowd presence in your sport? Are you aware of them? Do you feed off that? What's What's that like for you competing? So I think each each person is individual and, you know, I, I do love a crowd, especially people that I know and they cheer my name. I mean, that definitely fuels me to, to move a little quicker. Um, but given the, given triathlon, I mean, we are, we swim and we can't really see anybody. We bike typically it's like out and back. So you're there for miles on your own because spectators are never, you know, way out there. And then the run for, you know, you're, you have a crowd for maybe the, the as you run kind of by a certain area, but you're also by yourself for a lot of it. So there's kind of both. I think we're all kind of trained to have to have that self motivation as well, because there's not always a crowd there, but I think when the crowd is there, it kind of gives us that extra boost. So 
not having a crowd is something that isn't foreign to us. You know, we have a lot of races where there is no crowd, but hopefully at least there'll be some Japanese spectators there. And the great thing about people that live in Japan, they cheer for everybody. So um, hopefully they can be there and we can get some cheers. Right. Or some polite claps or whatever the, yeah. uh, the regulations may be at the time. You know, our audience includes a lot of people who are race directors, people involved in organizing events. And obviously you've, uh, in normal times, you're traveling to events, you're competing in completely different destinations, depending where the race is. Are there any things, Melissa, that the good events do well for you as an athlete when you're showing up? Are there any things that you're looking for that just make the experience easier for you when you're competing? So obviously, so I'm missing my leg and a lot of my teammates have various other disabilities, wheelchairs, visually impaired. So I think typically we know beforehand that the races are going to be para friendly, which means that, you know, there's no curbs, there's no, there's a wider berth on the road for, for the racing chairs and the hand cycles. So I think just going into a race without any question that if it's a para race, it is going to be para friendly and there's going to be no question asked um, in that sense. And also, I think it all kind of goes just with the para side of things. You know, like I don't just have a pair of shoes. I have two running, I have two prosthetic legs that I have in transition also. So just kind of making sure we have room for those, making sure things start on time. I think that's a big thing. Um, and just being as accommodating as as they can be really. Yeah. Have you found over time that the venues and the cities are becoming more aware of what your needs are? Uh, definitely. And I think, you know, USA Triathlon, so there's like a paratriathlon development series. There's various races that go on, you know, around the nation. And I do think that the races are vetted beforehand to make sure that they are accessible for athletes with disabilities and they can, you know, give give us a space that we need to really make it be a productive race. Yeah. Let me ask you about another uh, venture you're involved with, Dare to Try. Talk to me about that organization and, and what that's been able to accomplish. Yep. So Dare to Try um, was co-founded by myself and two others in 2011, based out of Chicago. We get athletes with physical disabilities into the sport of triathlon. So triathlon is a very expensive sport, as triathletes all know, but you add somebody with a disability that like, they can't, if they're in a wheelchair, they can't go and buy a bike off the shelf from a bike shop. They have, to have a custom bike. It's very expensive. Yeah. So we help provide the expensive adaptive equipment, coaching, training. We really kind of take away any barrier that somebody has to getting into the sport. Sport. And in the past week or two, Dare to Try actually um, was honored to receive the PNG Athletes for Good Fund Award, which is $10,000 that Dare to Try is going to use to help get more athletes to the starting line, to help, you know, get those. To, we really show athletes with disabilities how much ability is in their disability. So we truly change lives when athletes cross that finish line for the first time, they get self-confidence, self-worth, and just really proud of what we've done over the past 10 years. I'm really honored to be a recipient of the PNG award and just really excited on what it's going to do in the future. Yeah. Is cost the main, I mean, is that the biggest barrier for people to get in or is it access to races, is it a little bit of everything? I would almost say all of the above. For someone with a disability, cost, I would say is number one because you have to fund yourself to get to the race. Um, you need the equipment and also, actually, yes, cost 100% because it goes, it, it, it encompasses everything. I mean, they have to get to the race somehow, whether it's a flight, are they a visually impaired athlete? Do they need a guide? Do they have to pay for them also? I mean, a triathlon is an expensive sport. I would imagine just like everything else with events having been largely shut down the last year, that's uh, only adding to the to the barriers there if there have been fewer opportunities for people to compete. Definitely. And I, I'm sure everyone, I mean, I know race directors have, I mean, I think everyone has kind of felt it the last year on just the impact that, that it's had. 
Yeah. As we're closing here, Melissa, curious to get your perspective. I mean, the the entire world has been through this amazing battle with adversity in different ways here the last year, and not to at all compare it to what your own personal experience has been, which has led you on this amazing journey. But I wonder if you've got any thoughts just in general to people out there about dealing with adverse times, which regardless of your abilities or disabilities the last year, every single person, it seems, has had their own journey through something here in the last year. Yes. So I think after losing a leg, obviously something I never expected, right? Was able to kind of overcome it, come out even better on the other side. So it, it sounds like I, when the pandemic started, it's it's been hard. It has impacted, severely impacted so many people. But trying to kind of keep that optimism that, you know, I lost a leg, I was kept that optimism and ended up better on the other side, was able to get through it. So kind of trying to keep that optimism that we're going to get through it, we're going to get through it together. And I think now anyone that's lived through this pandemic, they can say that they have, you know, experienced something that they never expected. But I, I hope that we are kind of, you know, on our way up out of it. And I don't know if it's too soon to say we've made it through, but we are making it through. And I think once we make it through, if something else happens, you know, in someone's life, they can look back and say, well, that was really hard, but we made it through. So it's, um, yeah, I just imagine hopefully people kind of take that perspective and think about their lives and how they can kind of overcome whatever they, whatever they want. Yeah, for sure. People need that kind of messaging right now, probably more than ever. Let me close on a slightly lighter note. I read in your bio, Melissa, that you have a pre-race ritual of eating gummy worms. Is that still a thing? Um, it is. It used to be like a whole bag of gummy worms. And now I, I tailor it down to just like one or two. But yes, it comes from, I did really well in a race many years ago. And I'm like, what did I do? And after the race, I thought back and thought, you know, what, what did I do before? And it was, um, I ate a bunch of gummy worms. So it's kind of, kind of stuck with me. So I do, I eat a few just to kind of keep the tradition alive, but um, not, not the whole bag, which my mm-hmm. nutritionist would be very thankful for. Right. And your kids haven't found your stash of a uh, gummy, gummy oh, worms. Yeah. Oh yeah, they, they have. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Melissa, thank you so much for taking the time out to talk with us and obviously wish you and the entire team the the best of luck in Tokyo in whatever form uh, that ends up taking between now and then. But thank you for your time. And it really has been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. And you as well. And just anyone out there listening, if you haven't checked out the new PNG, the, the, the film, A Mother's Nature, it is, um, have your tissues, have your tissues handy. It's, um, it's very powerful. Yeah, I've seen it as well. And while my whole family enjoys watching the Olympics and the Paralympics, my wife in particular can barely make it through the PNG commercials. Oh, and, uh, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's become a game in ourselves for my son and I to kind of look over there and see if she's crying <laughs> yet. And usually we're crying too. It's um, Yeah, agreed. <laughs> So it definitely resonates with with all parents out there. Excellent. Thanks so much, Melissa. I appreciate it. This has been another edition of the Sports Travel Podcast. Thanks for listening. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast on all your favorite platforms, including iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Past episodes are also available at sportstravelmagazine.com, which features regularly updated breaking news and in-depth features on stories related to the sports event industry. Be sure to visit us daily at sportstravelmagazine.com, at Sports Travel on Twitter and Instagram, and at Sports Travel Magazine on Facebook and LinkedIn. Until then, this is Jason Gowers for Sports Travel, and thanks for listening.